And let me ask you something as Paul writes and gets into this, because what Paul's doing is he's kind of going back to some of the some of the basics, really, you know, who we are in Christ, what Christ did and and whatnot. And it's easy to read over stuff like this and be like, man, that's that's back to the beginning. But is it safe to say sometimes we probably need to go back to the beginning because we live in a world where we got an identity problem. We want to be part of this world. We want to be part of his world. And then we want to make up our own world. And, and when we do that, we, we mix up a whole lot of stuff of what the Lord really intended to, to hold off with us. So I thought it was very appropriate and fitting. I didn't know we were doing the song today. So God really lined two things up. Let me share with you just how awesome God is when you're in tune with his spirit and stuff. So we were, we're gonna, we are going to end different. So I was talking to Carla about it. She goes, Oh, I got the song enough. I told her about the sermon and the, and the chapters and all and, and the verses and, and that song enough just sets the tone, does it not? Because Christ is enough. Amen. And he's supposed to be enough. And if you can't amen that, then maybe he's not enough for you and we need to solve that issue. Uh, maybe you've been adding stuff to the plate you ain't supposed to add to the plate. And maybe you thought something else was substituting a need that he was supposed to fulfill. Um, and that would get you in a heap of trouble. So that song in itself was so appropriate. And then about five minutes before I walk in this side door right here, I look out and I'm watching five adults play kickball with only four kids. So, of course, I pulled a pastor card and I said, hey, it looks like y'all got more adults than children. Y'all need to come in here and, and learn something. And they said, oh, all the kids are about to come. And then you watch the herd get up and leave. Well, then Celeste comes in and she says, hey, I got a question about the Lord's Supper. We're trying to teach the kids today. And would you know, this is no joke, man. I ain't talked to her <laughs> whatsoever that the fact that we was going to do this today. Is God just not awesome? You know what I'm saying? Like your kids are learning the same thing you're going to partake of at the end of the day. And if that don't give you an opportunity to go home and talk Jesus with your children and your family, you ought to let me smack you with the Bible as hard as I can in the head. And you know what I'm saying? Like straight up. I mean, I, I, the Lord has lined it up completely for you to, to have this opportunity. And I just think it's beautiful, man. Um, maybe you'll go home and a kid will teach you something. Uh, so maybe he'll smack you in the head with the Bible instead the other way, right? So... um I do want you to hold that through the service, and I do want you to think about it, because we will end that way. But here's where I want us to go. So if you if you got your Bibles, you should have them open already. As the head, read about the head. And here's where we've been, if you hadn't been with us. So the Bible's laid the groundwork in the book of Colossians, especially chapter 1, for the advancement of Christ. You know, Paul has heard about this church, and... You know, he's had visitors come in and, and kind of share some some concerns with him, maybe even some questions. So we've talked about it already. You know, Colossia, Colossae is, is set up in the in the heat of paganism. I mean, they've got a temple for everything in this area. Um, so Paul's worried because people aren't getting rid of Jesus. They're keeping Jesus, but they're also adding stuff from all the other religions to it. Even what seems like good Christian religions, you know, with their rules and regulations and, and all these expectations and stuff. So, so Paul says that needs to be addressed. And another thing that needed to be addressed was the fact of they were worried. Well, man, Paul, if you're in prison, are you even the right guy for the job? So Paul lets them know, I will suffer all day, all day long if it means I get to love on you guys. If it means I get to share the, the, the advancement of the gospel. If me being in jail promotes the growth of somebody finding out a true relationship with Christ and, and it spreading like wildfire through that. So he, he answers both of their questions and tells them that. So the groundwork gets started in this thing. In chapter one, we talked about the full potential that, that we have if we reach out and let the gospel touch every area of our life, finances, relationships, emotions, our hopes, our dreams, like everything that we're supposed to be doing. So this week, chapter two, is we, we finish it out with a lot of verses but Paul makes it real clear that Christ is the foundation for all that spiritual potential. And if Christ is not the foundation for all of that spiritual potential, if we've added to or taken away in any way, we're going to miss out on some of those blessings. So he reiterates again the importance of Christ, the importance of what Christ did on the cross for us, the, the importance of what Christ should be doing in our lives. So he, he has vital information about the real story of Jesus, because I tell you right now, the first thing the enemy wants to do is interrupt the truth about Jesus. I mean, think about how many of the truth, how many of the lies, sorry, that have corrupted the truth that have stayed throughout mankind in its time. It's not the non-existence of Jesus. It's the lessening of Jesus. Most of the arguments that have lasted since the beginning of time, none of them did away with Jesus. Jesus has historical record. He's got a historical birth date. He's got a historical death date. He was a real guy that they wrote about and talked about, whether you're talking religious books or non-religious books. So what does the world do? Oh, well, he just wasn't really God. 
He just wasn't really the savior. He was a prophet. He was a teacher. They lessen the value of Christ. Or you've got this Gnosticism group that comes along and they believe that anything uh, physical has negative connotations. So then they would change it up to say the fact of, oh, well, Jesus can't be really God because he's man and man is evil in itself. So you, you just got a whole lot of stuff being fed to these early believers that Paul wants to address and make sure like, hey, let's make sure we get this this right. And he even answers the question why we talked about it last week in verse four. But this question of, of why he's writing them, he told him in verse four, I tell you these things to keep you from being fooled by fancy talk. That's my translation. Fancy talk. I don't know what your translation is. Right. But 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 he's writing and he's saying, I don't want you guys to be fooled by all this persuasive speech that's all around you. And then he says in verse five. And you get two ideas that kind of start this whole thing. He said, even though I'm not with you, I'm thinking about you. I'm glad to know that you're living as you should be living with your faith strong. So if you've got your Bibles and you and you didn't really connect those two points last week, I want you to underline and highlight maybe your circle. In verse four, it says to keep you from being fooled. So Paul says, my purpose is to keep you from being fooled. But he follows through and here's the catch. The catch is if you want to keep from being fooled, you must be following the precepts that are set forth in God's word. How can we expect to not be fooled if we're not following the groundwork that Christ laid for us in his word? Right? It's why some of these Sunday school teachers are so excited and trying to invite you guys to get involved in studying the word. It's why we've got ladies groups that meet and, and men's groups that meet and, you know, and, and Bible studies that meet on Wednesday and whatnot. Because the more we bathe ourselves in the word and prepare for it, the more we're able to combat the lies and the foolish fancy talk that's all around us. So he said, my first thing is to keep you from being fooled by fancy talk. And I'm able to do that. If you want to make your faith, we called it foolproof faith. Then you should be living as you should. So two things, keep you from being fooled because you're living as you should and then being tied together. So we learn it, then we live it. And I want to add to, we should be living it out loud. We should not be a quiet group of people about what we believe and what we, you know what I'm saying? Like the quiet group sometimes gets run over. And maybe that's why this world has been corrupted the way it has and changed the way it has and why churches are the way they are because we've, we've been quiet for far too long. And maybe it's time we get a little loud. Maybe it's time we, we get a little obnoxious. You know what I'm saying? You ever, you ever meet one of them obnoxious people? Nobody's ever met an obnoxious person? If you, if you, if you haven't and you're looking around and somebody's looking at you right now, you're the obnoxious person they met. <laughs> So spouses just looked at spouses or parents just looked at children or children looked at, you know, and, and, and so forth. Friends looked at friends. You're the obnoxious person that they met. But here's one thing you got to be proud of about an obnoxious person. They're passionate about a whatever they're obnoxious about. Are they not? No makes sense. I'm going to tell you right now, like you give me a passionate person and we can groom them the right way. But you give me a dead person, you can't develop excitement. You know what I'm saying? Now, there's some grooming that's got to take place, but I, I'll take the passionate person, you know, who needs a lot of grooming and, and, and shifting to make sure they get it right versus somebody who's just dead. Does that make sense? All right. So 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 that passion, is, it, sometimes it does annoy us, but it doesn't have to be that way. Right. So we should be living out loud as I'm studying this thing. I got to the last verse and here's what set this up. So I'm going to go to the last verse and then go back to the beginning. So verse 23, it's on the screen or in your word. All that stuff Head just wrote about, all these additions, all these taking aways and adding tos of the scripture into Christ. Paul wraps it up with this last sentence. And here's what he says. Such regulations indeed have the appearance of wisdom. They look good. It looks more religious. It looks more proper. It, it looks more formal. With their self-imposed worship. Oh, we already got a problem coming. Their false humility. There's another problem. Their harsh treatment of the body. And here's the kicker. But they, and you can underline this last part, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. I told y'all I spent 14 hours yesterday doing actually longer than that, I guess, if I count driving time, right? That's a long time when you didn't get much sleep on Friday night anyway to get up at six, to roll and not get back to 10 and then to stay up who knows what hour of this morning to finish everything and get stuff straight for today and whatnot. So I'm going to confess to you guys. I was driving down the interstate, three interstates, I-20, I-77, and I-26, and I did the same thing on all three of them, right? I did the same thing you guys would do, right? No, 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 no. So I passed this, this sign. It's white. It's got black numbers on it. 
Y'all know what I'm talking about, right? It said 70. Now, what does that sign mean? <laughs> Did somebody just say it meant 75? <laughs> the sign that says 70 means what? It means 80. That's my brother right there, bro. <laughs> that old Ford was doing way more than that on the way home. <laughs> it means what? Y'all need some Jesus up in y'all's life. Y'all want to break the law before we talk about the law. Huh? It means 70. Now, does that sign make me go 70? On my way home last night, what was most people on the interstate doing? I'd say the average is probably close to 80. 75 if they were a grandpa and retired, right? If they were doing 70 or less, what was happening? They were getting passed, right? What'd you say, Head? That Ford passed everything on the way home yesterday. As soon as Crystal started listening to her legal stuff and my kids fell asleep, I was gone. <laughs> right? So... Why doesn't the speed limit, why didn't that sign stop them from speeding? Don't they know the rule? They didn't see a cop. Is the cop going to stop them from speeding? Is it? No cop has ever stopped me from speeding. Jacob, can you stop anybody from speeding? You hear, he didn't like that. I took his authority card from him just now. He was like, he thought he had authority and he thought he was good. And I was just like, give me that thing back, bro. You couldn't. Right? I won't pick on you anymore. Carla, when you were a state trooper, could you stop people from speeding? You couldn't? For a moment. So if you stopped them for that moment and they got back in their car, they could still go 75. <laughs> peel out. Don't peel out after a cop pulls you over. That's bad, right? No. Because rules don't stop us from doing anything. Right? Does that make sense? So this last part of verse 23 makes perfect sense to me as I'm reading it. And Paul writes and he says, they, they lack any value in making me want to do the right thing. Because that sign on the road doesn't make me want to do the right thing. Now the gas prices made me think about doing the right thing. You know, that hit, hit, me, hit me where it was, right? But, but the sign doesn't. Why? Because they regard the posted speed as too slow for what? My need. I needed to get home, Bo. You know what I'm saying? So my need was then what? More important than the rule, law, right? Safety. I was safe. Girl, I can drive. What you talking about safety? <laughs> Better jump in and hang on. <laughs> the rule has no power to stop us from breaking the law. We understand that? And that's all Paul's trying to get these people to understand at the beginning. It's not the rule that does it, right? The problem with depending on rules is it only makes us as moral as we want to be, right? If I want to keep a rule, I will. If I don't want to keep a rule, I won't. So rules and regulations make me only as moral as I want to be. No more and no less. The thing Paul's getting at and he wants to make sure these people understand is this. I have to want to be more moral. I have to have, I have to have a desire and a change has to take place inside of me that makes me want to do the things I'm supposed to do. And here's what Paul writes about. So you go back to verse nine. I don't be all out for a little while, right? But he says, apparently something has changed in you guys. He's writing a church of early believers and he reminds them of a change that took place. He says, you know, when you and I were, or for us today, when you and I were baptized into Christ, it says verse 11, our sinful past was removed. Like dead flesh being a cut away from your body. That sounds like a good thing. Our hearts were being filled, verse 10, our hearts were being filled with Christ. You and I have been forgiven for all our sins, verse 13. We've been made alive in Jesus. Maybe some believers need to know they've been made alive, by the way. Right? Some of y'all still think y'all dead. Acting like you did, walking like you did, talking like you did. You've been made alive, though, because Christ is enough. In other words, Paul's writing and he's saying, your old sinful heart is being taken out. It's been cut away. It's been replaced with a new Christ-powered, Christ-centered heart. And if you've got a Christ-centered, Christ-powered heart, now it's not the laws and the rules that are making you want to do stuff. It's the change inside of him, or a change inside of you because of him, sorry, right? That now gives you a desire because Christ dwells inside of me, so it's not moral. I don't do it because I have to. I'm now doing it because I want to. You guys understand the difference when you do something because you want to versus when you have to? Right? 
You ever realize like when a kid does an apology on their own, how real it is? You might not like the wording of it, but it's going to be as real as it can get, right? Versus when they're forced to. It's just a whole different kind of thing here. And if your heart belongs to Christ, uh, Paul's writing these Colossians and saying, guys, he is enough to change your desires. He is enough to change what you want to do. You will begin to do the right things because of him being inside of you. And, and it'll be something that develops and grows and, and becomes more. So, so it's not just the, the thought that they needed other stuff in addition to him. Paul's making sure they understand that it's not Jesus and the observance of the law. It's not Jesus and, and mystic rituals. Christ is, or Paul is saying, no, Christ is enough. Christ should have did everything when he took over your heart, that ultimate love, that ultimate sacrifice, eliminated the ultimate enemy. You have it all. So if, if you guys are with me, say this right here. Say, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. All right, that was weak. So I'm going to do it like they do like at one of those big events, right? You guys are going to say Jesus because y'all are holy. We know y'all wouldn't want to say anything else, right? So Jesus plus nothing. Everything. Sorry, my brain. I'm not smart, right? So I had to elaborate it too. There was four sides and it threw me off and I was trying to divide the words. And Anyway. Jesus plus nothing. Now see, y'all were... Y'all. It's just two more words. That's all you had. You had one extra word than everybody else. You couldn't hang. You couldn't handle one extra word, really, huh? All right, redo, redo. Don said that wasn't good enough. We're gonna get it right, right? So it's hey. Oh, they had another section. They could have had the everything. We're not gonna redo it though. Y'all did such a good job the second time. We won't take it away, right? Do we understand that though? Like we say it, but do we fully understand it? We sing the words to the song just a minute ago. Jesus is enough. Is he really enough? Or are you still adding stuff to it? Are you still needing more? You know what we tell Jesus when we tell him we got to add stuff to him and we need more? We're telling him the opposite. You're not enough. Right? Th- think about when we, when we tell our spouses or, 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 you know, friends or whatever, like, like, you're not making it. I need, I need somebody else. I need something more. You're telling them what? You're not enough. Right? Now, I don't want to tell Jesus that. Verse 20, his driving point says, If you died with Christ to the elements of this world, again, the way the world seeks security and power, so for us today it's most likely money, why do you live as if you still belong to the world? Paul's saying, why are you guys still doing and living like you belong to something you said you died to? He even goes in, and we'll be there next week, but he says, so you've been raised, or chapter 3, so if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things above where Christ is. Set your mind on the things above, not on these earthly things. For you died and your life is hidden in Christ with God. Why are you so focused on the things of this world if you truly belong to him? We talked about at the beginning of chapter 2 that we shouldn't just focus on our conversion. We're called to demonstrate our commitment. If we're going to get deeper in our walk with God, we've got to start demonstrating this stuff. Our knowing, you can say it this way, our knowing should lead to some growing. Right? And this growth can be, can be stunted, it can be choked to death through the weeds of, here's what Paul's worried about most, the weeds of legalism. Legal, and here, here's some ways to define legalism, and I'm just going to give you six, whether you agree with them or not, six things I've seen legalism do that maybe it'll help you understand it, not even from a religious point of view or Bible point of view, right? So, so if you were to define legalism, it's the human attempt to gain salvation or to prove your spirituality by outward conformity to a list of religious do's and don'ts. You get what he's saying? He's saying that the legalism is an attempt for me to be made more right with God than Christ on the cross. Christ on the cross wasn't enough, so I needed to add something to it to make me more holy, to make me appear more holy, right? So here's some observations I grabbed from that. You tell me if it, well, don't tell me if they apply because probably more than one of these is step on our own toes, right? We tend to think others are legalistic and we're not. When by very nature, we are legalistic people, right? Think about it. How do you judge others most of the time? Do you judge others by biblical standards or by your own standards? Right? We like them by what? What? If they like what we like. If they do what we do. Right? Our standards are what's acceptable and anything else isn't. My sin smells better than your sin. Isn't that the attitude we have sometimes? You ever notice that we can click with people real good that sin like we sin? And then we'll all talk about people who sin differently than we do. 
Huh? Is that not the truth? That's how we do it, though. We have little tolerance over people who sin differently than we do. That's a form of legalism. Second thing I see with legalism sometimes, it's contagious. Seriously, it's contagious. It's like a bad virus that can spread amongst a congregation. You get one or two people following it, and you'll have five or six. You get six, you'll have 12. You get 12, you have eight. You know what I'm saying? It just grows like crazy. I think it's the number one reason Jesus reserved his harshest criticism for those that were legalistic. Look back at Mark chapter 7. Verses 6 and 8 and what he says. These people honor me honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. He's worried about it being contagious and other people getting it. You hang around that type of group, it gets contagious and you get it. I'm going to go through these because this isn't even the main part of the sermon, right? And here, here's probably the saddest one for me. I had it number three, but maybe it should have been number one for the saddest, right? Legalism can take a vibrant faith and make it dull and lifeless. I've seen people get on fire for God. Get excited about their walk. Be ready to roll in their faith. And then let legalism come in and choke out, evaporate their enthusiasm, dump their joy, and strangle their spirituality. Why? Because they took Christ off the shelf and put something else in his place. Right? Instead of finding freedom through Christ, they became burdened by the church. Now, do we want to be a church that's burdening people? Or do we want to be a church that's setting people free? And don't you dare leave here thinking I meant free to sin either, okay? We're going to keep it, in, keep it in the fence. Number four, fourth thing it does. Legalism produces large quantities of self-righteousness and judgment, condemnation. You ever been around people who are legalists? Huh? How they make you feel? Man, you just get an uneasy. You could be the most holy person in the room. You could have been sitting in the holy section. I don't know if y'all holy, but this is the holy section. So y'all sat in it, okay? So y'all going to be that illustration the rest of the day, right? So you could be the most holy people in the church like this group right here, Right? But yet be around, <laughs> be around somebody who's legalistic and feel like crap. You could be completely right in your standing with the Lord and your studies, your relationship. You could be growing and on fire and yet get around people like this and they just suck the joy out of you. You know what I'm saying? Like it's a day. It's why Christ was so against it, man. One of the number one people he preached against the most was this. It majors in guilt and misguided sacrifice. It, it, it has relationships with, with God as the basis of, of scoring rather than God of love. You think God's keeping score on you? You think that's how it's working? Now, don't get me wrong. There, there's some verses that talk about your jewels in heaven and, and all that kind of stuff. But I'm talking about your right standing before the Lord. So make sure we're talking about the, the, the right thing too, right? Superficial spirituality short circuits the work of grace. Grace is gone when we get superficial spirituality going. Fifth thing it does, or fifth thing I see legalism do, it makes us so narrow and divisive. Legalism insists that everybody's got to what? Be just like me. What does that do for the church? If everyone's got to be like you, what does that do for the church? Does it not take away one of the greatest gifts the church has? You realize one of the greatest gifts the church has is diversity? Huh? I think, I'll get aside, I think it's what makes... Us as, as one of the one of the bodies of Christ, like so awesome. Mitch used to call us a body of misfits. We are. We're all misfit in some different direction. Right? Somewhere along the way, we all drop something or pick something up or, you know, whatever in between. And and, and somehow the Lord brought us all together. I mean, we are a vast group of very different people. I think about it sometimes. I don't I hate to admit that my mind ponders during Bible study. But I think about sometimes on a Wednesday night when we're sitting around the, the men's group and I look around, I'm like, man, each of these guys are so different. Our passions are different. The things we like to do are different. The, the things that excite us. are, And that's a good thing. I don't mean it to be a bad thing. I mean it to be a, like a great thing, an exciting thing. Because if we ever lose the diversity of the church, man, all we've done is create a cult. Right? When we've got groups that everybody's got to be the same, that's all we've done is create a cult. So we miss the delight of diversity in the church when we let legalism make us narrow. Last thing I see, and again, this is just like a free sermon for you. All right, number six. Legalism makes it impossible for people to see Jesus. Because if there's somebody who's seeking Jesus, all your rules and regulations, all you do is push them away. You did. We portray Jesus as this drill sergeant instead of a savior, Right? And now let me, let me give you some real, here, here, here's why it's so scary. And Paul uses this wording, which we're going to go back and look at. Paul uses this wording about the illusionist or the, or the way Satan and his enemy tries to deceive us with the foolish talk and persuasive speech and, and fancy talk and all that stuff, right? So here's the crazy thing. You can actually take a good thing 
And it can make you legalistic. Here's an example. You ever had one of those moments where the Spirit just grabbed you? It's okay. We got Bapticostals in the room too. So like, you Baptist or even you Methodist, like, we'll let the Spirit grab you and it'll be alright. Right? But you, you ever had one of those? One of those I got one to laugh. He's like, yeah, that's okay. <laughs> if you've ever been grabbed by the Spirit, you tie, here's how you tie it in. You tie it in with whatever you're doing at that moment is what allows you to be grabbed by the Spirit. So if you were at your house and you fell on your knees, you were in the middle of prayer, emotions took over, it was the most real moment you ever had with Christ. Then when you come to church and people aren't on their knees praying, what do you think? Oh, they're not doing it right. They're not going to get the Spirit because they're doing it wrong. Right? What happens is this. The seed of judgment begins to come in because others aren't doing what we were doing when we felt that spiritual moment. Right? Do we not do the same thing with worship? How about with worship sometime? Oh, if they're not raising their hand and moving, Pastor, they don't even know what worship is. Really? Huh? Or those that are being still and observing everything at a formal regulatory attitude. Right? Regulatory a word? I don't know. A proper attitude. Right? You know, those people that are so proper and holy, they don't ever move in any way or share any emotion in any way. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm just saying like those people, look at, then they look at those that are moving and they're like, oh, they're corrupting this thing and making it into something it's not. Do they not? We judge people off of how we feel our spirituality. We do it all the time. So we think if somebody ain't waving their hand and feeling the spirit, then they ain't got it. And the dude who's not waving his hand and staying still, he thinks you just corrupted it in a whole special way because you were moving. Right? We judge this way. So, so and here's, here's the problem. Is kneeling in prayer bad? No, I got on my knees last night and prayed at like 1.30 in the morning. I just hit a roadblock and had to have me a moment and fell down right in front of the computer. I haven't been, been actually on my knees, knees in a long time in front of the Word and praying like that. I prayed all the time. Don't, don't hear me wrong. But man, that moment just hit. I had right there in the computer there and, just, and it was just a moment. Right? Nothing wrong with it. Nothing wrong at all. But when I then think that's what you have to do to get what I got, that just became wrong then, right? Because now I put a legalistic approach on it. Same thing with worship. There ain't nothing wrong with raising your hand and dancing. David danced naked before the Lord. Right? Isn't that what it says? Some of y'all women like, he had on his boxers, Pastor. We've read the Bible. We studied it. Well, if I go dancing in my boxers in church, my wife's going to be mad too. Okay, so naked in boxers, either way, probably ain't going to get it done. Alright? But, but is that not what he did? Do you, do, you, do you remember what the verse said? He comes back at his, his wife who's so mad at him. He goes, I wish the rest of the people of the country would get even more undignified than I am right now for worship to be real. What he's saying is if he was wearing his boxers, let's just go ahead and go with that, right? He's saying, I wish they'd get more undignified. That means he said, I wish they'd take the boxers off too and go dancing for the Lord. And it'd be a real, genuine worship. Could you imagine what would happen if we get a church full of a bunch of even more undignified worshipers? <laughs> Not naked! Maybe naked spiritually, though. Can you imagine what would happen if we get naked before the Lord spiritually? Just start being blatant, honest, and stripping things down? Huh? You, you talk about that speed limit and that desire and all that stuff. You realize one of the greatest prayers you can pray is for the Lord to either, one of two ways, to make you hungry for His stuff more and to make you sick of the stuff that's not of Him. Amen. you got a desire. I'm not telling you you can always get rid of desires because I, I, we're human. We can't. But I can tell you, you can pray, Lord, take this desire from me. Right? Let, let that desire be removed. You know, it's, it's one of the scary things sometimes when we think about like addicts and stuff. And I realize like that hunger and that thirst may always be there. But I also believe that the Lord is big enough to take that hunger and thirst away. Amen. Where eventually you can get to a stage where you're sitting in the presence of it and not desire it anymore. Because you want to tell people what made you higher than that drug did. Or that alcohol did. Or what made you feel better than that alcohol did. Right? So, so, so we, we just need to grab a hold of that and understand what Christ can do through us. But at the same time, guys... We can't let legalism be so sneaky and so subtle that it sneaks in and we think because we did something one way and felt spiritual that everybody else got to do it that way. That's not the way it works. Right? Any, how many of you guys got more than one kid? Wow, y'all took the Bible verse about go out and populate and y'all ran with it like everybody, right? Here's, here's what you learn when you got more than one kid. Seriously though, when you got more than one kid, what you learn is that each kid's wired different. 
Right? Eat. I mean, what fuels one? Think about it. Seriously. What motivates one kid is different than what motivates the other, right? What, what, how one kid acts and responds to stuff is different than the other kid. And if you, you've got that, you completely understand what I'm talking about. Do we not call Father Abba? Right? So are we not his children? Do you not think he knows what excites us on our own level? What excites you is probably different than what excites me. What excites you? You know what I'm saying? Like, like we're all different. So God knows that. And is he not the perfect father? So then don't you think he's okay? Like within reason. I'm not saying he can motivate us with anything. But don't you think it's okay then that he motivates each of us differently? Within the realm of, of, of the boundaries of, of, of the word? Yes. Yes. So if we're not careful, we, we default to performance-based discipleship. That's where I'm trying to go. All right? And that, that's where this group is going. That's exactly what's starting to happen in this church in Colossae. They, they've become performance-based disciples. And Paul says, if you guys want to keep from being fooled, keep from the counterfeit religions all around you, I'm going to give you some things. We call it faith that's foolproof or foolproof faith. I can't remember which way I wrote it. Crystal wrote it. Right? Here's number one. Maintain, and this is a little bit from the beginning of last, or the end of last week. Maintain consistent communion with Christ. Some of y'all's hearts just dropped. Y'all are like, hold on, that's number one of the actual sermon? All right, it's all right, we'll get through it. Maintain consistent communion with Christ. Go back to verse six. Right before we're head left, where uh, Caroline ended up last week for us, right? You have accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord. Now keep on following Him. You've done it. Now keep on following Him, not anything else. Plant your roots in Christ and let Him be the foundation of your life. Be strong in your faith just as you were taught and be grateful. Plant your roots is what he said, right? So, so what he's saying is this. And, and man, I hope, I pray we're not a church full of people just wanting to get a ticket to heaven and escape judgment and, and worry about the life after. I hope it goes much deeper than that. And that's what Paul's writing about in a lot of his letters. He's saying, guys, it's not just about a ticket into heaven and escaping eternal life or obtaining eternal life and, and all that kind of stuff, right? It's so much deeper. And he says, your roots have to be rooted firmly in him so that you receive the nourishment like a root that's planted correctly from him. Right? Anybody start planting stuff yet? Gardens, flowers, springtime, grass. Oh, not till Good Friday. That's a religious answer, isn't it? Are you talking religion while I'm preaching against religion? Careful how you answer. <laughs> but, but, but here's the thing. Here's the thing. Are you going to plant that flower, that crop, and then next week pick it up and move it to a different spot? And then the following week move it again? Why not? It's got to take root. You can't just keep moving it along, right? It never received the nourishment it's supposed to be. The plant's going to have to get its roots down so that it can receive the nourishment. Paul is saying the nourishment for foolproofing, foolproofing because of their fancy talk, right? Foolproofing your faith from Christ comes from a constant communion and relationship with Him. It comes from staying rooted, spiritual strength, not being fooled by false teaching. I promise you, if you stay close to Christ, you can't be fooled by the world outside. It's that easy, right? So Christ, and I promise you this too, Christ has done His part. He's going to keep doing his part. Now it's up to you. Because friendship is a two-way street. Y'all ever, ever developed a relationship with somebody or thought you were going to develop a relationship with somebody and they were like, oh yeah, I want to be friends too. But yet every time you call them, they're busy. Every time you reach out, they can't respond. Huh? How good is that relationship going to be? That's going to be a difficult friendship to maintain, right? Don't have that with Christ. Man. Don't make it difficult for Christ to maintain a friendship with you. Stay close. Stay knit. Stay rooted. All right, number two. Watch out for the non-essentials and meaningless ridiculousness. Couldn't think of any other words to throw in there, so I just threw all three in, right? Meaningless ridiculousness. Meaning this. Go back to verse 8 through 10. Don't let anyone fool you by using senseless arguments. These arguments may sound wise. They may sound good. But they're only human teachings. They come from the powers of this world, not from Christ. Verse 9. God lives fully in Christ. Paul's combating a group right here, which we need to fully understand, especially as we get ready to partake of this here at the end. Paul's combating a group that was trying to say that Christ wasn't fully God. And if he wasn't fully God, and he, was, he had a little bit of, a little bit of man, and, 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 and more man than God in him, do you think his sacrifice was worthy then? No, because he'd been an unworthy sacrifice then. So Paul's saying, like, that can't be, guys. Verse 10, you are fully grown because you belong to Christ who is over every power and authority. 
Paul's writing and he's getting to this part and he's saying the devil and his promoters, they're like illusionists. And like any great magician, they've got their own tricks. When you watch magic, don't you know there's a trick? Right? Even if you can't catch it. Some of us watch magic just trying to catch the trick. Right? But you know there's a trick, right? Paul's writing this section and he's saying, guys, we know the devil is trying to trick us. We know it's an illusion. We know it's something we need to be aware of. So be aware that Satan is interested in muddying the waters of Christ and messing him up. Whether it's his wording or his language or anything else. That's why he repeats, God lives fully in Christ. If you get your ideas about Christ mixed up, then everything's going to be off balance, by the way. I mean, everything, seriously. Paul's trying to write to, to this group who's being hit by all different angles. And he's telling them, guys, if you start off with error, you're going to end up with more error. We have a phrase, and I can't even remember which book my wife read it from, that she quotes that I think so spot on. It says, what you win them with, you keep them with. Right? You understand what I'm saying? We're talking about salvation. What you win them with, you keep them with. So if you win them with fancy lights, cool music, a fog machine, guess what you want them to? Fancy lights, cool music, and a fog machine. Right? But if you win them to Christ, right? It's why sometimes I'm so afraid, to be quite blunt and honest with everybody, why I'm so afraid when I do a funeral to even give. Now, I want to introduce them to Christ, don't get me wrong. But I don't even leave off with an opportunity for you to do any repeating after me, any of that junk. Right? Like, I'm just telling you straight up like that. That's the moment where, like, I don't want to win you with an emotional downward moment. I want to win you when you understand who Christ is. I I want there to be an opportunity for you to dive into Scripture and grow this relationship with Him. Right? It's it's why we we don't do... uh, God bless the Baptist church, right? We've always in VBS always made this big point. How many kids can you baptize in VBS? You know how many baptize in VBS? I don't either. I mean, there's been some. I'm not saying there isn't any. We introduce them to Christ, right? But that's not the main goal. Do we understand that? Everybody's like, oh man, pastor, I don't know if I like. You don't have to like it if it's the truth, right? Truth's the truth. Sometimes we've corrupted ideas to make it fit our schedules. Right? So to make our fit our, here's what we do. What do we talk about with legalism? Our point system. You realize that's, that's what we've turned it into? I'm ashamed to tell you that as believers. That's what we've turned it into. We, we get calls all the time. Hey, how many people you baptize? Why do you care? Oh, so we can write it down in our book. Oh, so you, it's a point system to you. Is that not right? Is that not what we're doing? Huh? What does Bodhi say? You can't say men say ouch. We ought to say a lot of ouches because that's what we've done. Let's just be blunt and honest about what we've done. We're worried about getting enough points on the board to make one denomination or one religion look better than the other. Right? What are we really trying to win them to, guys? What are we really trying to win them for? I want to win people so they get a relationship with Jesus. I want, I want to win people where like they're, they're so hungry to learn more about the gospel and more about Him that, that like I don't have to convince them to go out and tell people about Jesus. When they go out, they have to tell people about Jesus. Right? Now, don't get me wrong. We can't send them off till we get them in. Right? So it's, it's a two-way street. I understand that. Huh? But, but, but please understand, like, it, it's got to be that way if it's going to be a genuine and real kind of thing. So, so that's where we're going, right? You start off with error, you're going to end up in more error. So Paul says, let's just, let's just stop the error in the very beginning and get this foundation right. Here's what he says for the foundation. You need to live in the, in the point number three. You need to live in the light, not in the shadows. Live in the light, not in the shadows. Here, here's what the first light. Best light probably you can get if you're a believer. The light of forgiveness. The light of forgiveness. You ever been forgiven for something? I'm not even talking by the Lord right now. You ever been forgiven from a person? Someone you hurt that you loved? Someone that, that you cared about that you made a mistake with? Right? Is that not the greatest feeling when they... Like, Jim, I'm not talking about when they say, Oh, I forgive you, but you're going to pay for it. That ain't quite the same forgiveness I'm talking about. I'm talking about like when genuine, real forgiveness comes over, right? Like that, that, that whole Corinthians 13 kind of attitude. Or like no record of wrongs, right? That, that, I, I, you're there. Man, that's, that's such a genuine, good feeling. And that's the way God wants to forgive us. And look at it the way he's looking at it. He looks at it as the way that we put his son on the cross. So he's saying, I, I forgive you that I had to go through that means to pay for your sin. Live in light of the forgiveness, right? They were insinuating, these false teachers were insinuating that the work of Christ on the cross wasn't enough. That wasn't enough for forgiveness. Christ's work wasn't the finished product. Look at what he says. 11, I'm going to read 11 through 14, I think it is. 
Christ has also taken away your selfish desires, just as circumcision removes flesh from the body. And when you were baptized, it was the same as being buried with Christ. You were raised to life because you had faith in the power of God who raised Christ from death. You were dead because you were sinful and not of God's people. But God let Christ make you alive when he forgave all your sins. Verse 14, God wiped out all the charges that were against you for disobeying the law of Moses. He took them away and nailed them to the cross. I wanted to research to see if a story was true. But I'm going to share it with you with the regards of, hey, this is something I pulled off the Internet. So take it at face value, right? But there, there's a guy, Steve Brown, he tells, he tells of, a, of a doctor in a mining town, you know, just, just a poor area. People couldn't pay their bills and whatnot. And he writes and he said, man, when he realized people just literally could not pay the bill. Not they didn't want to. They just weren't able to. He would write at the end of their, their bill, canceled. And he did this for years. Well, when he dies, his wife finds out about it. And she thinks that she can go back and collect on all these bills. So she literally gets a, supposedly at least, gets a court case going on this thing. And, and tries to go back and collect on all these bills. And here's what the judge says. If your husband said that their debt is canceled, it's canceled and can never be claimed again. You realize that's what Christ does for us? He said your debt is canceled and it won't be held against you again. He says that there's two truths in this section of Colossians. And the first is this, 9 through 15. You can divide this chapter two ways, by the way. 9 through 15 and then 16 through 23. 9 through 15 is remember our legal standing. Remember your legal standing before the Father. Our best defense to a performance-based faith is to remember our legal standing. If we understand that God's divine decree, that what Christ did on the cross on our behalf was enough and nothing else needs to be added to it, then we won't be seeking other ideas to be made right with God. Right? Now that's the big difference too, by the way, the, the motivation behind all this. The second thing, 16 through 23, is to resist the lures of legalism. The best way to pull out the, the weeds of legalism is to understand that I'm complete, I'm alive, I'm forgiven, and I have victory in Christ. Right? This is done. Galatians 3 repeats this. <laughs> if you got your Bibles, you can open it there. It won't be read this way because I'm going to write it in, in my translation. I don't have a translation in case you thought I was that special, but I do when I'm speaking. Galatians 3, 2 through 3. I should ask you a simple question. Did you receive the Spirit of God by trying to keep the law or by believing the message of the gospel? I love Paul's honesty, man. He just starts out with just a blatant question. Did you receive the Spirit of God by trying to keep the law or by believing the message of the gospel? Maybe that's something you need to answer this morning. Surely, here's maybe where my wording gets in a little bit different than Paul's. Surely you can't be so idiotic as to think that man begins a spiritual life in the spirit and then completes it reverting back to the outward observances. Right? Paul's saying, look, if you guys really did obtain the spirit of God by believing the message of the gospel, then why would you think something that was in the spirit can then be reverted and finished in the physical? That's not the way it works. So you need to live in the light, live in the light of forgiveness and live in the light of the power of the cross. Go back to 15 through 17 of chapter 2. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly, he triumphed over them in him. Therefore, don't let anyone judge you in regard to the food or the drink or the matter or the festival or a new moon and the Sabbath. Now, when you see the word, I've said this before, verse 16, when you see the word therefore, you should ask, what's it there for? That's an easy way to remember, right? What is therefore, therefore? This is a time period where this stuff is what was combating and trying to be added to a right standing before God. You, you understand the difference? That we need to make sure we grab this because people will take this and run many different directions with a lot of this stuff. Right? Paul is saying straight up like, this is a time period where people were trying to tell people, hey, if you're not doing this, you're not saved. You're not getting in the kingdom. You're not in right standing with God. You have to do Jesus and this stuff to get it. So it's the motivation behind why it's written. That's the therefore, okay? I went to school not very long, obviously, because I can barely speak. But I did go to school for a little while. And, and in school, I remember taking one of the classes and, and we preached a sermon. The men upstairs have heard this before. And man, I finished preaching this thing and it was, it was, it was cool and I was excited and, and whatnot. And I had this, this girl come up to me after class and she goes, you're going to be amazing when you get saved. And I was like, what? <laughs> girl, Jesus done choked the life out of me a couple times in life. I'm, I'm there now. So I had to say, where, where are you trying to go? Her belief, her denomination, her, her doctrine or whatever, fully believed if you didn't have all the spiritual gifts, then you weren't saved. 
So I had told her before, like, hey, I don't have the gift of speaking in tongues, something in class we did or whatever. And, and she remembered that. So she she held it to me. She said, well, when you get saved, you're going to be awesome. I was like, we're just going to have to agree to differ in that. But is, is that not the same principle that's taking place right here? He's trying to say, if you're not doing all this stuff and Jesus, you're not getting it. Now, Paul also never says not to do any of the stuff. He just says, make sure your motive and why you're doing the stuff matters. You understand the difference? Is that clear? I just want to make sure I'm clear here. Right? Paul's, Paul never says, hey, get rid of all the old stuff and never do it. He just says, make sure your motive is what's right. So it goes back to the speed limit sign. Are you doing it because you feel like you got to so that you don't get stopped for a split second? Or are you doing it because you desire to? Like you care to. God's changed your desires, right? So, so that motive. All right. The cross of Christ has the power to forgive our sins, not only in the past, but also to help us into the future. Look at what 18 says. And remember, Paul's speaking against mystical experiences, fake spirituality. I mean, all this stuff. Don't be cheated. Verse 18. Don't be cheated by people who make a show of acting humble. Apparently, these false teachers had come in and they were so proud of their humility, they were using it. Then it says, in those same groups that worship angels, they brag about seeing visions, but all of it is nonsense. Because their minds are filled with selfish desires. It's their desire. It's their motive. Verse 19. They are no longer part of Christ who is the head of the whole body. Christ gives the body its strength and he uses its joints and its muscles to hold us together as it grows by the power of God. You died with Christ. Now the forces of the universe don't have any power over you. Why do you live as if you had to obey such rules? Don't handle this. Don't taste this. Don't touch this. These are not the rules which make you holy. After verse 22, after these things are used, they are no longer good for anything. So why be bothered with the rules that humans have made up? And then we're going to come back to verse 23 at the end to wrap this thing up. All attempts to reach God and human strength have failed. That's religion. Religion is man trying to reach God. What didn't fail is God reaching us. That's relationship. No man-made formulas, no secret knowledge, as they call it in this verse, no rule-keeping, no false spirituality can ever bridge the gap between God and man. He bridged the gap between us. He sent His Son down. All of our attempts to reach Him failed. The only sufficient plan for salvation is Christ. Because what? As we sing, Christ is enough. Christ is everything. Christ is all. Not who's got a bigger rule, bag to make, rule book to make themselves feel more spiritual or anything like that. Because as verse 23 said, the rules don't have the power to change our desire. Only Christ does that. True passion for serving God. You, you remember what Paul writes to Corinthians in 13? We use it for weddings and all that lovey-dovey stuff. You realize what Paul's actually saying though? He said, man, you guys got all this ability to speak the future. You got all this, this gifts to do this and this ability to do that. He said, the only thing that matters is if you guys have love. True, genuine love. Love for one another and love for the Lord. If you've got true, genuine love for one another and a love for the Lord, that takes care of everything else. And Paul's not saying here, let me go back to it. Paul's not saying here that the law doesn't have his place. He's saying that the law's place is not to make us right with God. I think it's in Hebrews, but don't hold me to it. One of the other letters, and Paul writes, and he says, the laws were like shadows. We know what a shadow does, right? Does a shadow not over-exaggerate stuff? No, where's my where's head and Duke and Dale? Hey, all three of them. Yeah, I guarantee. Here you go. Watch right here. How many of y'all ever flexed and looked at your shadow? Go ahead, raise your hand, head. I knew the middle. I knew the middle one had it right. That's the flexingest man you ever did see in your life, right there. Why'd you look at it in the shadow? Magnified, baby, makes it look bigger, right? The problem is if you look at your shadow and you develop in a gut, the gut looks bigger too. Huh? It magnifies the curve, right? <laughs> what, what Paul is saying, I think it's Hebrews. Now don't hold me to it because I didn't write it down. I apologize. But in Hebrews, when he says it's like a shadow, he's saying these laws, these rules, they magnify what Christ came to do. They're drawing your attention to it so you can check it out and study it and all, right? So Paul's not saying the law doesn't have a place. He's just saying its place is not to make us right with God. Christ did that. So it's got a place, all right? I don't ever want to read stuff like this and think it doesn't, but it's got a place. Look to the light of the cross, though, for the power to live right. Because if you're not going with that motive, man, oh, you're going to miss it. Why? Because rules don't abolish my appetite, fleshly appetite, 
Right? I need God to be working inside of me to do that. I need His grace. Not a list of rules and activities. I need real life change to take place in me. You teach grace before commitment. Why? Because once grace is understood and embraced, it'll lead to commitment. You get somebody with grace and I promise you their commitment to come, right? But if you get somebody the other way with equipment, commitment, hmm, I messed all that up. No equipment needed, right? (laughs) If you get them with commitment first, rule keeping first, it's going to lead to legalism. There's a difference. We got to win with grace. Titus says it this way. Chapter two, last verse. Well, second to the last verse. I'm sorry. 11 and 12. For the grace of God to bring salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passion. And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. What are you being motivated by? God's grace that brought salvation? Or a list of do's and don'ts? Rules. Let me ask you this morning. What is your Christianity like? Is it focused on yourself or is it focused on Christ? Because where your focus is is what matters the most. Are you a list keeper or are you a grace giver? Have you been set free or are you still tied up? You, you ever you ever watch, Monique's not here, but man, she's got a six-year-old who is the nastiest little BMX racer in the world. Oh, yeah. Straight up awesome, man. You ever seen 155 and six-year-olds on bicycles? It is about as chaotic as you're picturing right now when I say it, right? Mm-hmm. Ain't none of them got training wheels on, though. Why? Yeah, take the training wheels off to ride that kind of ride. Here's what it is. So rules are like religious training wheels. They keep us from tipping over, but don't they confine us from breaking free? Make sense? You can't really ride a bike as good as you can ride it with the training wheels on. Right? It was kind of one of the things I realized. We, we got dirt bikes for the boys, man, I don't know, years ago. And, and they jump right on and we had training wheels on one of them. Right? And then I realized when the training wheels come off, he didn't know he was supposed to lean with the bike. Right? Because the training wheels had corrupted him. They taught him to ride wrong. Right? So, so sometimes training wheels keep you from breaking free. So let's take the training wheels off so we can break free and not be bound up. Right? Not be, not be condemned by rules, but be set free by grace. Not, 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 not what, what can we do, but rather what's already been done. Maybe that's a good way to put it. Maybe you should spell it D-O-N-E instead of a D-O. Right? Christ finished it on the cross for me. He finished it. There's a story of an Alaskan pipeline worker in the 70s. He made a bunch of money, went off and, you know, worked on his own, made $30,000. Back in the 70s, now that's a lot, right? He came back home and blew it all. Gone. Went back out again, came back, made 18000 this time. First time back, now he'd been known from the town. Obviously, he was a town drunk and just, just, just a rough dude, right? The pastor who, who, who writes this thing, this one is a true story, by the way, for sure. Checked it, right? But the pastor who writes it, he talks about this guy coming in. He goes, man, I thought it was Grizzly Adams going to come to my church. He said, this guy was rough. This guy was tough. This guy had the beard and rough clothes on. And it's just just one mean looking dude. And I actually said to myself that Sunday, if anybody in this church service gets saved, it won't be that guy. Can you imagine being a pastor and that's the first thing that comes out of your mind, right? He said he finished preaching the sermon. And before the first line of the song could got out, that guy was down at the altar. He didn't know what to expect of it, right? So he talks to the guy and, and prays with the guy and whatnot. And they go about their business for a whole week. Said they come back the next Sunday and this very large dude in a three-piece suit with a clean-cut haircut, clean-shaved face, all, all this stuff rolls through. Oh, i got to read what, what he said exactly so I get it right, right? He's got all this stuff going on. He said the pastor runs up to him and he realizes this is the same guy. And he says, man, what what are you doing? Like, you, you don't really have, he wanted to make sure, like, you don't have to, you don't have to do this. Here's what he said. He said, Jesus changed me on the inside and I want people to know it. So I changed the outside. Amen. Have you changed the outside because Jesus changed the inside? Or did you just change the outside and ain't nothing took place on the inside yet? Because then you're just a phony, right? Our, uh, our last verse, Colossians 4. I don't know how many weeks it'll be before we get here. But it says Epaphras. Who's one of you guys? It's probably the guy who came and told him, by the way, about the church. He said he's a servant of Christ Jesus. He sends you greetings. He's always wrestling for you in prayers. That goes back, we used to, I think it was last week, wasn't it? Agonizing prayer. He said this guy is agonizing in prayer for you. That you can stand mature, fully assured in everything God wills for you. 
We're going to close different. There's not going to be no song. If you're a believer, it's a gift to be able to partake of this. Jesus said, he sat down with his disciples and they, they finished eating and whatnot. And I think it was probably more like this right here. Like that line and that bread was there the whole time. They looked at it as Jesus was talking. They saw it. Some of them might have already been eating some of it, to be honest with you. I mean, think about it. We're honest. Let's be real, right? They're sitting around the table. Very likely, they already eaten some of this bread and drank some of this wine. Right? And, 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 and then, as they've been thinking, as they've been seeing this stuff, Jesus, he picks up one of the pieces. And he says what Paul basically just said in his own words about Colossians and the cross. And he said this, this body, this body is going to be broken for you. And when this body is broken, it is enough. You don't need nothing else. And the minute you think you need something else is the minute you, you've lessened the sacrifice. And then he had that cup, that chalice probably. And, and, and he reminded them of, of that. He said, this, this blood, this blood is going to be shed for you. And I don't think they still gathered it at that moment. But I bet you a few days later when they witnessed the cross, a lot of it began to come to terms in their head. And I bet as weeks went on, they began to understand even more. And then later when Paul and all the disciples, they did finally understand and finally know exactly what Christ was talking about. He sat down at a table with some of his friends too. Some of his followers. And he told me, guys, this, this is the body and this is the blood. But he also gave a warning with it. He said, this thing is so important, it's so real, that we need to make sure we take it in a worthy way. Because to do it in an unworthy way is one disrespectful to the gospel, is one disrespectful to Christ, it's disrespectful to the body that was broken, to the blood that was shed. But he also gives a warning, he says, that some of those in the church are sick because they've been doing this in an unworthy manner. So rather than have a song right now, we're just going to have silence. Like just straight up silence. Some of y'all, that'll drive you nuts. It will. You'll be alright, you'll get over it. Some of you need to exercise some of this stuff. So I just want you to, everybody bow your head, close your eyes. I'm not even going to pray for a few minutes. Because I want for the next two, three, or however long the Lord leads, you to hear from nobody but Him. No music, no song, no sidetracks. You get right with God. You remember like Paul was telling the church. The body that was broken and the blood that was shed. And you know for sure, beyond a shadow of any doubts, that it is more than enough for your relationship with the Lord.
want to ask you something. Other than just now, when's the last time you sat quiet long enough to hear from God? Not filling the gap with your complaints and your desires and your worries, but just sat and heard from Him. I hear people often say, like, man, I wish I could hear from the Lord. Sometimes you got to sit and shut up. You know, even ocean and the wind and the waves at night, what did he tell him to go to sea? Just be still, stop. Stop all the chaos, stop all the distractions from the world. We can't, we, we, we've developed our minds where we can't sit in silence long enough <coughs> to stay focused long enough to even have an opportunity to hear from the Lord. We, we've done a thing before, I guess all parents probably have, where you send your kid to the room. Right? Sometime before beating, sometime after. Sometime they know the beating's coming. But we always use this phrase, right? You go to your room and you think about what you just did. You use that as a parent, right? So when you get into that room, if you're the kid, you can still remember back that far, all right? When you get in that room, you got a couple things going on in your head. You're thinking like, mm, when dad gets in here, it's going to be bad, right? But then like the longer it goes where like nobody comes back there and you're not invited back out, there's a whole other thing that goes through in your head. And I've had a couple, <laughs> I've had a couple different responses come from kids that are sent to the room. I've had them come out crying. Now, I don't know if they're crying because they're afraid of punishment or if they literally felt that bad. Oh, I'm so sorry. Right? Maybe that was something just now for you. Like maybe you just needed to have that moment of telling the Lord, I'm sorry. I needed to be reminded of some things and I thought of them just now and I'm sorry for trampling and adding to you or taking away from you. Then you got some to go to a room and it accomplishes nothing. Let's just be honest, right? That silence accomplished nothing. They in the same place they were when they went in as they come out. Maybe that's some of you. I don't know. My favorite one though, and if you're here, this is fine too. My favorite was one time one of the boys come out of the room after a long period. And I said, you know what you did? And he goes, no. <laughs> I have no idea. I've been there. He's genuine. I'm not, I'm not saying like trying to be smart. I don't know what I did, Dad. I don't know why you're mad. And if that's you... Why it's funny for a kid in that situation, if that's you spiritually, understand that's a good thing. Because you're in a great spot to figure out what you did. Right? You're in a great spot to be able to learn and grow and become and develop a real relationship with God. Not some religion. A genuine relationship. For a guy who broke his body and shed his blood. For you. For you. Carl and the worship team are going to come. While they come, I want you to peel that top layer off. Aren't these little fancy cups so nice? You got it all in one. I know it's just a wafer. I know it's just unleavened bread. But Scripture tells me this is to remind me of a body that was broken for my sin. For my mistakes. Right? For what I thought of while I was sitting in the room and quiet. It says when you take it, you rejoice taking it. So eat that thing up, man. That's your appetizer for lunch right there, right? Make you hungry for more, shouldn't it? Shouldn't it make you hungry for more? Then if you go back to that first time, Jesus was sitting at a table, he said, after he passed that bread around, but you got a picture to see, but he's sitting with his feet, he's probably passing this giant loaf around, and they're all just like peeling a piece off of it. Right? They're all the moths, that's true. So it's like southern dried up bread. Um, <laughs> So they're breaking pieces off. That's how dried up it is, by the way. <laughs> Seriously, it is. But then he pulled out this chalice. And I don't think he had fancy wine glass and cups. So I think he passed the chalice around. Right? The cup around. or the Some of y'all went to parties and had red cups. That's all right, too. <laughs> but he passed around and he said, This time, I want, you to, I want you to look at it. And I want this to be symbolic of blood that's shed for you. He said, When you drink it, drink it. But may it be a reminder of what was done for you. Because when it reminds you of what was done for you, it impacts the way you live outside. It impacts your, de your desires then change based off what was done on that cross. 
Not lists of rules and regulations and, and I got to do this because it's written in the book. But I do this because I want it. I want to be better. Because Christ thought I was worth it. That very first time that they, they did this in the upper room as far as with Jesus. Now they did it for all the, the Sabbath. Well, not all the Sabbaths, but all the, the holidays. They've been doing it not even knowing why they were doing it for some of it. Right? But, but it said that they left making a joyful noise. So you're leaving today. There's no order of prayers, none of that, right? You stay and you worship as long as you want to this song. <coughs> Altar's still open. If you need to get right with the Lord, your seat's still open. If you need to get to right with the Lord, and the back door's open if you just need to leave. But it says that they spent time making a joyful noise to the Lord. So our exit prayer is a joyful noise to the Lord.